My name is Matthew, and I'm the student ministries pastor here at Connection Point Church. I'm happy to be here with you, but I want to take a moment before we jump into anything else. um, There's a special guest with us. He's going to be a resident in our church. He'll preach occasionally. Um, Some have said, just me, that he was the tennis champion of all of Indiana, Illinois. Some would say maybe Michigan. Who knows? Great shape for a 40-year-old, beautiful beard, Aaron Gregory. Give, Give a wave. I asked how much I could make up, and he said little. Um, But yeah, my name is Matthew. I'm the student ministries pastor. I'm glad to be with you guys. For the bulk of summer, we were talking about the book of James. And James is this really practical letter in the New Testament that takes the teachings of Christ and tries to contextualize it to the early church and tries to make it very summarized and easy to live out in our lives. And Pastor Holly finished that off last week by talking about the necessity for both prayer and confession, but also praise in our lives, that we as Christians will do all three of those things and that they're good for our faith, that we pray regularly, but that we also confess not only to God, but to each other, and that we praise God for the goodness of him in our lives. So in a couple weeks, we're going to start a new series that will cover us for the bulk of the fall. And so when I talked to Pastor Aaron before he went on sabbatical and I was asking him what I could talk about, he said, you can talk about anything you want. And then he put on the caveat, but it has to be about the Bible. And I said, I can do that. So we're going to talk about everyone's favorite book in the Bible. We're going to talk about Deuteronomy, right? It's your favorite, probably, I'm sure. Deuteronomy is an Old Testament book, but in it, we're going to talk about the leadership of Moses in trying to remind the people of Israel of their history, where they've come from, but also where they're going. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you a little bit about my upbringing. Um, I am a talker. I like to talk. I like to hear what's going on in people's lives. My parents, at least my mom, is an even bigger talker than I am, and her parents are even bigger talkers than she is. So family gatherings was gathering around a table or in a circle in the living room with coffee and most likely baked goods. And all we would do, even from a young age, is talk. I loved it. And one of the things that we would do is you would hear at least one point or another, either my mom or my grandparents say the line, I remember when, and then a bunch of memories would ensue. And my mom would talk about what it was like to be a teenager and a college student in the 70s and 80s and kind of what it was like to be in the church at that time. You know, she would tell me the price of gas. She could fill up her full tank for four or five bucks. And here I am paying nearly $4 for a gallon. Right? So it was kind of wild to hear that. She would talk about what it was like to go to college in that day and age and just how different it was from my experience. My grandma would talk about just life experiences, like the big things that happened in culture and society. I remember from a young age, she told me where she was when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. She was in a grocery store, kind of like Kroger. And she found out that the president had been shot and TVs weren't as common. And so they gathered around a small little black and white TV to see the news and hear what had happened. They didn't know he was dead yet. My grandpa would talk about post-Great Depression era and what it was like to live and scrape by. And how they would barter with neighbors, we'll trade you this food for that food. And how he had a pair of shoes that once he outgrew it, he didn't have another pair of shoes for a while. And how he doesn't like to eat chicken anymore because they raised their chickens and that was the meat they had. So he's like, we ate chicken every single day. You get sick of it. Still to this day, I don't see him eat chicken that much. But my point is, I would hear them talk about their memories and always say, I remember when this, that, or the other happened. 
But the through line, the one common denominator in all of my family stories was their story of faith. This big lineage and history of their experiences in church. I'm a fourth generation Nazarene, which is this denomination. I grew up going to church every Sunday morning, night, and Wednesday nights. Right? My family would talk about revivals they had gone to and Bible studies they were a part of. Faith was a really big deal. And what I realized was when I was a young kid, I had this thought and I, I told my mom, I'm like, man, I can't wait until I'm 65 years old. And she's like, why? And I will tell you, it had nothing to do with the senior menu or AARP or any of that. It had everything to do with the fact that I wanted to tell my kids and grandkids memories too. I wanted to have those moments to share with the future generation and say, I was there when this happened, or I experienced the faithfulness of God in this situation because I was collecting memories just like my parents. And the truth is our memories matter. They shape not only what we think of ourselves, but they shape our idea of our family lineage and our family history. And more than that, they shape our idea and understanding of who God is in our lives. All because of what we remember. Casey Tigert says in a book called As I Recall, which talks about the spiritual formation and practices of remembering. He says, our memories are what make us. They shape and guide us. Eric Candle won the Nobel Peace Prize for neuroscience, and this is what he says about memories. He says, without the mental time travel provided by memory, we would have no awareness of our personal history, no way of remembering the joys that serve as the luminous milestones of our lives. We are who we are because of what we learn and what we remember. Our memories matter. And in Deuteronomy, Moses, who is leading the people of Israel, gathers them together to share a little bit of their history, to reiterate their journey, which had started as enslavement in Egypt. They had been enslaved and abused and oppressed in the uh, kingdom of Egypt at that time, and God had freed and liberated them through what an event we would call the Exodus. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. And he sets them free with the covenant and promise of a promised land out there. It's a space set aside for them. But the problem was that they had to wander for a time through the desert to arrive at the promised land. And so in Deuteronomy, which comes as the fifth book in the Old Testament, the end of the Torah or the law, Moses is just trying to reiterate the story to the people of Israel because they're starting to get to a point where they're starting to doubt. And they're starting to grumble and wonder, what if God didn't mean it when he said the promise? And what if God didn't actually mean his promises and maybe we'll never see them come to fruition? And so at the end of Deuteronomy, that's what Moses is doing. He's trying to give his final marching orders before he passes off the gauntlet of leadership to Joshua. And he's trying to tell them this as a kingdom of God is what is expected of us. And he's trying to reiterate their history, which is where we get the name of Deuteronomy in Greek. It means second law or repeated law or reiteration of the law. And so we pick up in Deuteronomy 24. This is what it says. Moses says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. He reminds them of three things, if you notice. He says, remember not only where you come from, remember who saved you from there. 
and then remember that we are supposed to be different. So I want to talk about those three things because I think they're still pertinent to us. And the first thing he says in verse 18 is remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And for a lot of us as modern thinkers, we're like, how could they ever forget, right? They'd experienced all of this hate and turmoil. They were treated as objects less than. They were abused. They were mistreated regularly. And God had freed them from that oppression. And so Moses is here saying, yeah, I want you to remember that time. And it kind of grates against us because first off, how could they ever forget? And second off, our mode of operation sometimes is the old saying, forgive and forget. Have you heard that? We say it all the time. What we're really saying is get over it. It's done. Let's move on. And what Moses is saying is the complete opposite. He's saying, actually, it is perfectly good. Forgive. That's great. But remember where you come from. Because the fear is that if we forget our experience in Egypt, that we'll wind up back there. History tends to repeat itself. And if we're not careful, we can forget why leaving was the best option. There's actually this experience with the Israelites in Numbers 14, where they've been wandering in the desert for a while now, and they start to grumble against Moses' leadership. And this is what it says in Numbers 14. It says, that night, all of the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they said to each other, we should choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. And I'm going to say, from my perspective, this seems like short-sightedness. It seems like a very narrow-minded approach. Because they're forgetting a whole lot of poor treatment. They're forgetting a whole lot of bad memories and the reasons why they left in the first place. But they've been wandering so long in the desert that they start to doubt the promised land exists. They've been wandering for so long that going back to the status quo, going back to all of the things they understood, seems like the best option. And we can look at that and say, well, that's you know, negligent. That's short-sighted. That's silly. How dare they forget what God had done? But the truth is, how often do we do the same things, right? We're liberated or we're freed from a cycle of sin in our life or a temptation or a toxic situation or relationships or even maybe a false identity. We tell ourselves, man, I'm not good enough or God will never love me or never forgive me or I'm ashamed because of this. I've made mistakes, but I am a mistake. Or maybe it's even an addiction and we get far enough away from rock bottom that it doesn't look that bad to go back. How often does that happen? We start moving towards the promised land only to turn around and want to go back. Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil has this beautiful book called The Roadmap to Reconciliation in which she gives this paradigm. We have a picture of it. This paradigm of what it looks like to seek out the process of reconciliation or restoration in relationship. And she says that for a reconciliation to take place, there has to be a catalyst or a catalytic moment, or you could even put that differently as like the light bulb aha moment where you realize, oh, things need to change. She says for that to happen, for us to make the process of reconciliation happen, we have to have a catalyst and then we're given one of two options. We can move forward towards transformation 
or we can move backwards towards preservation. For the Israelites, their catalyst was the exodus. It was the liberation from all of their bad, abusive experiences. It was getting out of slavery. That was their catalyst. And God was calling them through Moses to move forward towards transformation. But when they get halfway, they do what a lot of us do when we're faced between these two options, an unknown promise of good things or a known evil and known reality. They start to dabble with the idea of just going back to all that they know. And so Moses consistently, this is not the only time in the Old Testament he tells them to remember Egypt. It happens time and again because he says, don't ever forget that there's nothing waiting for you back there. There's no living in the land of the dead. The only choice is to move forward. There's actually a a wonderful example. Jesus is giving this teaching on what it means to follow him. And he refers to himself as the bread of life. And he's talking about how to follow Jesus is a huge responsibility. It's not necessarily this call to an easy life or even this super wealthy, successful life. It's a responsibility. And so a lot of the disciples and followers of Jesus who are hearing it get really frustrated. And so they pull him aside and they say, explain this to us. And so he tries to explain what it means to follow him, to devote your life to following Christ. And in John 6, this is what it says. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And this is the kicker. Simon Peter answered him. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would we go? Back? There's nothing waiting for you back. The only option is to move forward towards transformation. That is what God is calling the people of Israel to. That's what God's calling us to. Not to go back to all that we've ever known, but to move forward towards transformation in Christ. Moses is consistently reminding them, remember Egypt. Don't forget what happened to you because when you forget, you wind up back there. But that's not the only thing he says in verse 18. He also tacks on this other line. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. But then he says, and it was the Lord your God that redeemed you from there. Now, it seems like a very passive line. And on a superficial reading, you could just breeze past this whole passage. But the power of that statement is really interesting because the disciples or the uh, Israelites are in an interesting spot because they're starting to doubt God. Right? When they were grumbling against Moses, it wasn't just Moses they were grumbling against. They were grumbling against God. Why would God lead us here? Why would God lead us out into the wilderness to just die by the sword or have our wives and children taken as plunder? This is a personal attack, not just against Moses, but against God, because they're starting to question, are the promises of God really real? Are we ever going to see this flourish? And so Moses says, don't just remember Egypt. Remember the God who saved you from Egypt. There's this tactic that happens in the Old Testament time and again. The Old Testament authors will do this thing where even in a difficult time like wandering the desert, the Old Testament authors will do something where they'll say, remember how God was faithful to you and trust that he will be faithful again. David does it in the Psalms. He'll start and he'll explain this hopeless situation and then he'll say, but God, I trust you because you've been faithful to me. You can look at the exilic period in the Old Testament, like with the times where Israel was exiled from their land by Babylon and Assyria. They were in this state called diaspora. It's this theological term that literally just means to be displaced, to to feel so radically homesick and like you don't belong. 
You are not where you're supposed to be. And one of the things that they talk about is God would send prophets to them to bolster and to encourage them. That even though you're going through difficult times, God has been and will continue to be faithful. He was faithful in the past and he intends to be faithful in the future. You can trust God's faithfulness. And so Moses tells the, uh, the Israelites, he says, remember Egypt, but never forget God. Remember what happened to you in Egypt, but never forget the ways that God was faithful to you, even in the worst of times. And so when you look around and you can't necessarily see the presence of God in your life, we can trust that he will continue to be faithful. The third promise is a little more um, practice-driven. Moses talks about remembering Egypt and remembering God. And then he goes on this little diatribe talking about how they're supposed to act. So in verse 19, he says this, when you are harvesting in your fields and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Israel is at a very interesting spot in their history. Because shortly after Moses' death, they'll enter the promised land. Spoiler alert. It's been 2,000 years, though. Right? They enter the promised land. And when they get there, the, the point is that they will lay down roots. They will establish a kingdom and a way of life in their community. And what Moses is reminding them is, consider the experiences and the history you had in Egypt and learn from it. If you notice, he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God saved you from there. But then he says this, so I command you to do this. When you go to your harvest or when you try to beat the olives from the branches or when you go over your vineyards and your vines, if any falls to the ground or remains, leave it behind. Because the intention would be to stockpile or to sell more and to accumulate more and more and more, which was the very way of Egypt. It was all about their economy and building up more. People only mattered if they were useful or if they were customers. The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, they didn't matter to Egypt. They were the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the forgotten. And so it's interesting that Moses continually hearkens back to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, the people who would have been pushed aside. And Jesus at sometimes makes references to the widows and the orphans or the poor. It's kind of a synonymous moment. He's basically just talking about the people who societally speaking would be at the bottom of the totem pole. The people who get overlooked. The ones on the fringe. And what Moses is telling the people of Israel is that we weren't saved from Egypt to just become exactly like it. We weren't saved from Egypt just to replicate the same broken systems that we've experienced. We were supposed to be better and different. We were supposed to learn from our mistakes or learn from the mistakes of others and the bad examples and do something better and more God-honoring than that. I was reading this book recently by the historian Timothy Snyder, and he's talking about healthcare predominantly. And in early 2020, right before COVID, he had gone septic. He had been to the hospital a lot of times with all these symptoms and no one was being able to just diagnose what he was going through. And he had had a huge liver, uh, liver abscess, like problem with his liver, essentially. He was going septic and he was dying right in front of them. 
And so he writes about his experience of being in the hospital for months on end, just trying to recover. But in the epilogue, he shares this really interesting idea that I think is pertinent to what we're talking about. He says, even after we recover, even after we move on, scars and symptoms remain as a legacy of our malady or our affliction. Recovery is not necessarily going back to the way things were. I am not exactly as I was. History is never entirely behind us. We can learn from the aspirations and the failures of previous selves and previous eras and create something new. I will not again be as I was before, nor do I even wish to be because I've learned and so I'm better. Moses is reminding the people, hey, don't forget Egypt because we can learn from our experiences there. We don't want to create this system that just preys on the weak. We want a system that lifts people up. Right? We're expected to be different and to be better. And so for us as Christians, what does that mean? Well, it means that when we start to follow Jesus, our lives are so impacted by the way of Christ, the love and forgiveness that we've been shown, that it makes a marked difference in our lives as well. That we become a very reflection of the way of Christ in all that we do. We've been talking about this all summer. There's this point in the book of Colossians in the New Testament where Peter or Paul is writing this letter to the early church about how we embody the way of Christ. And he says this in Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Forgiveness, patience, compassion, gentleness, love. That's a different way to live. Jesus did not necessarily come to earth to give us a free pass to heaven. Yes, he came to save us from our sins. Yes, he came to restore us and to reconcile us back to God. That is true. But he also showed us a better way to live now. And it was one that was so entrenched in and steeped in love that it was radical and different, but better. We aren't supposed to fit into what is normal. We are supposed to be set apart to be like Christ. I heard this story the other day. Um, pastor Pete Hughes is a pastor based out of London at King's Cross Church. And he was talking about the story of when he interviewed a police chief in London. And he was trying to just get his um, testimony just to share with the church. And the police chief shared this interesting parallel where he said, you know, when we show up to a crime, let's say it's a breaking and entering, the first thing we do is to look for traces of the criminal, the perpetrator of the act. We look for footprints or fingerprints or any disturbances, points of entry, broken glass. Maybe they scraped their leg and there's blood. We look for anything that can trace us back to who committed the crime. Because there's always traces. You just have to do the hard work to look for them. He said the parallel for us as Christians is that when we follow Christ, we are called to leave traces of Christ in all that we do. We are called to leave traces of the love and salvation and redemption that we've experienced in everything we do, in your work interactions, your school interactions, with your family, in your neighborhood, and your community. There are supposed to be traces of Christ in all that we do. 
so that when people see us, they see Christ. That's why we're called to be ambassadors, because we're spokesmen and women of God. And that's a responsibility on us. To live out the way of Christ where we are a great translation of who God is. So we're not leading people astray. We're leading them closer to Christ. So what does that mean for us? What are we supposed to do with any of this? I mean, it's some great reminders. Well, first off, what's your Egypt? We all have one, right? Something that we go back to time and again just because it's comfortable to us. We know it. What's the thing that God is trying to free you from? or liberate you from so that you can move forward towards transformation. For a lot of people, especially with teens in this day and age, it's false identities. It's being told you're one thing over another, or you're not enough, or you need to do more to be enough. Or it can be shame. Or maybe it's toxic situations we find ourselves in, or repetition of sin and cycles of sin in our lives. Sometimes it's addiction. But what is your Egypt? What are the things that God is calling us to move forward towards transformation, away and to be liberated from those things? The second question is this. What stories do you need to remind yourself of God's faithfulness? Sometimes it gets really easy to get caught up in the desert. That's what happened to the Israelites. They were just so caught up. I mean, we were talking, they've been wandering for years and they're caught up in the desert, in the wilderness of their lives, thinking, what if this never pans out? One of the beautiful things about church community is that we as Christians in this community get to lift each other up when we do feel like we're struggling to find the presence of God. I know there are people in this church, in this room, who remind me, encourage me, and bolster me up to continue to trust God's faithfulness. So what are the stories of God's faithfulness that you need to look back on to recall and remember the ways that God has been faithful and continues to be faithful? Final question is, where are you leaving traces of Christ? Where at work or at school are you leaving traces of the love and the forgiveness and the compassion of Christ, the ability to enter into someone's burdens and suffering and to walk with them? Maybe this week you need to sit down and you need to think of ways that you can tangibly show the love of Christ to another person, maybe a family member. But where are you leaving traces of Christ? You know, memories are really important. They not only remind us of where we've been, but they guide us to where we want to end up. They're a good light to remind us of who we want to become. And I pray for this community that in a year, five years, or 10 years, we can look back on 2023 and say, that's the year. I remember when I was redeemed and saved by God. I remember when I chose to start a relationship with Christ or recommit to my relationship with Christ. I look back on that time and say, that's the moment things changed. And I chose to move forward towards transformation. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you help us to take next steps. The spiritual journey that we're on is a long one. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's intentional steps towards Christ. Sometimes we don't make the progress we think we should. Maybe we don't move as fast as we think we should. But God, I pray that you help us to take the next right step for us. Maybe it's showing up to church consistently. Maybe it's reading their Bibles or praying more regularly. Maybe it's getting involved in the community or more involved in the home. But I pray that we take next steps towards you. 
and that every day we become a better reflection of your love and your forgiveness to our family, our friends, and our community. Amen.